Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome. I am so excited that you are here today to listen to this conversation. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Maria Savoir. Maria is a master teacher, facilitator, and author. She is devoted to the science of well-being and the art of crafting a life and work that embodies health, passion, and success. As a positive psychologist and consultant, she focuses on resilience of the human spirit, particularly when under chronic stress and during difficult transitions. Maria is known for her wisdom, authenticity, and humour. She brings a wealth of perspective from decades of study in grief, resilience, well-being, and leadership. Maria is the author of two books, A Short Course in Happiness After Loss and Other Dark and Difficult Times, and Everyday Counts. In this conversation, Maria and I discuss the brutal and beautiful parts of life, the power of and, how to shape our days to experience more joy and peace, how to be with ourselves when we're struggling, the power of creating authentic relationships, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Maria Savoir. Maria, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, it is such a treat to be here with you, Meg. I am so excited because we're going to be talking today about your book, Happiness After Loss and Other Dark and Difficult Times. And when this little magical book came into my life, I remember thinking, oh, that's good. That'll be handy. I'm going to read that and just have it in my back pocket. And so many times I've thought, where's that book? I need that book. I'm in crazy town. I need to, I need to hold on to it because I feel like my life is feeling out of control. And this has helped me hold myself tenderly in such difficult times. So I really thank you for sharing this book to the world and sharing your knowledge. It's just so important. Well, thank you. I'm so glad it's been helpful. Without a doubt. So I'm really curious to know from you, Maria, how did you get so interested in this intersection between death, loss, brutal moments of life and happiness? Because I feel so far apart. So I, I think the, the, the deepest answer is that I lost a cousin um, when I was young. I was 19, he was 27, and he was diagnosed with brain cancer and died six months later. And it was shocking. It was a shocking loss to the family. And I didn't really know what to do with that loss. And years later, as I was getting my degree in psychology, I had the opportunity to work with children with cancer. And I was astonished to witness that some families, of course, you know, absolutely fell apart, but but some families didn't fall apart. In fact, some families became stronger even as their child was dying. And I didn't have the language for it then. But one of the things I understood was that that the families who were able to navigate that and stay connected and grow in their hearts and in their minds understood something about holding on to moments of goodness. So it, it wasn't just happiness, it was moments of kindness and generosity and sweetness and surprising laughter and 
creativity. And they, they just knew how to hold on to those moments so that they could go back into the clinic room or back into the surgery room or back home with their child. And thankfully, you know, psychology itself sort of grew a a subspecialty about three decades ago called positive psychology, which really looks at this intersection between the difficult and the beautiful. Oh, and as you're speaking, I can just see in my mind so many parts of my life where you do hold that tension, that paradox of this is brutal what I'm going through and there's something here that I never would have experienced any other way. Exactly, exactly. And you've just used a really important word, which is the term paradox. You see, human beings are remarkably remarkably able to hold on to multiple experiences, multiple emotions at the same time. We can be sad and hopeful. We can be scared and generous. We can be anxious and connective. We can be, you know, there's so many, there's so much complexity and richness inside of us that, and the most resilient of us understand this. It's not black or white. It's not horrible 24 seven. It is horrible and amazingly, surprisingly speckled with, with light or laughter or goodness or kindness, right? Oh, yes. And I remember you're the one who taught me the power of and. I remember sitting in a lecture and it seems so basic now, but at the time just that permission to be upset, sad and grateful, to be able to hold these two things. So when you're younger, you don't think of things in a paradox. It's either good or bad. I remember when I was younger thinking, well, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And then as you get older, you realise that really, really bad things can happen to really, really good people and being able to hold that with that. And I think that is so powerful. Yeah. So the and is a concept which has emerged in psychology. It's also emerged in, in uh, leadership literature, organizational strategic you know, literature. And what it points to is this capacity to hold multiple things at the same time. Now, what we know about resilient people is that they don't ignore their pain or their suffering or their grief or their anger. We don't, we don't ignore the fact that during this pandemic, we're exhausted and weary and just so fed up, right? We don't ignore that. And we consciously choose to integrate in the things that lift us or that inspire us or that strengthen us or that soothe us. So we we, we build in this and, which I, I like to think of as a bridge between two very potent realities that are equally valuable and equally significant. But in order to cultivate resilience, we need to have the flexibility to keep moving toward the good. Yes, and seeing you, listeners, Marie's putting your hands up and you can really see from one space to another space how can we be within them and be within them because as you're speaking, I'm thinking it's probably not very helpful for us to be in one space where it's all doom and gloom or all fantastic unicorns and rainbows both of those seem a bit disconnected with reality. So the and brings us closer to what is. 
Exactly. And I'll I'll give you an example of this. In 2011, when my younger brother died after only a 10-week jaunt with cancer, the morning he died was a Monday morning, a school day. And uh, it was in the southern part of the United States in February, which was the beginning of spring for them. And I, I just couldn't tolerate being in the house after he right after he passed. And I, I went and stood outside and, you know, my heart was shattering. I mean, literally my world just fell apart. And as I stood there for some time, my brother's children's school friends literally had just left school in the middle of the school day and come up the path behind the house across the street and were entering into the home to, to offer comfort to my brother's children. And I thought, you know, even as everything is falling apart, I am seeing evidence of love, of just forget it. I'm not going to math class. I need to be with my buddy. Remarkable generosity. The capacity to hold both is activated and elevated, first of all, when we know it's possible. Secondly, when we experience and choose to savor the holding of the good, even while the difficult is happening. So it's both a perspective. It's also a skill. And that's why I love being a part of this podcast, because we get to actually teach the, 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 the sort of big picture, but also pragmatically, we can build in the end. We have a difficult thought about ourselves or about our world. And then on the other side of the end, you know, pivot to a slightly more positive thought. Oh, yes. And so this brings us to this notion of happiness after loss and being able to be with reality as it is and then think about how can we consciously shape it as well. And that is just incredible and something that I'm really curious about. You know, in life when we have these moments like how do we do this? Like there's no manual here. So this could be, I can't imagine losing a sibling, losing a partner, um, even becoming a mum for a first time. Like we have those moments like, hey, where's the manual? How do we do this? How, how do we reconcile those first few moments when life strikes? Well, first of all, we have to allow them to be, acknowledge them. I mean, there, we, we, we need to be able to allow ourselves to fall to our knees or to be swirling in confusion or to be so frustrated with injustice that we literally can't speak. In other words, we need to feel what we feel and think what we think and not deny it. Denial is non-resilient. George Banana, who's the head of the Loss and Trauma Lab at Columbia University for so long, talks about the hallmark of resilient people is that they face the thing as a challenge, not as a threat, but as a challenge. And somewhere inside of them is the, okay, what am I going to do about this? You know, we start strategizing. But notice that the very first step is to face it, to feel it, to face it, acknowledge it. There have been moments in my life, and and one of the chapter titles in the book is called Whiplash, where I literally have felt like, you know, I've been slammed by a a meteor and my neck and my whole body is in whiplash and I cannot focus. I cannot see. Everything is just cacophonic around me. And that's part of the process. And we don't need to stay there because you see thoughts and feelings, they, they move, they're fluid and flexible. They come in, they come out. And 
if we stay stuck in any one set of thoughts or any one set of feelings, we're really minimizing our experience of life and we're minimizing our capacity to cultivate resilience. Oh, you have just brought up something that really takes my curiosity when we talk about resilience and thinking about the difference between potentially disassociation, like just play on, nothing here, and actually feeling it. Because I feel sometimes in our attempts to be resilient, I'm putting quote marks up around here, people feel the need to just move on, just Mm. soldier on and say, oh, they're so resilient, they're getting on with it, they're capable. And I sometimes worry that, is that doing us a disservice, this message of just having to just bounce back and game on, toughen up, move on? So here's where it gets quite complex um, because, so let me let me see if I can pull on some of the, the threads here. If you are just moving on, moving forward, because action feels better than actually feeling how broken you feel or how sad or how betrayed or how angry. And you're just moving forward as a, as, as a way to escape. That is That eventually will cost you dearly. It will cost you in physical health, psychological health. It'll cost you in relationships because inherently relationships are complicated and messy. And if you're just moving forward, if that's your strategy, you're going to lose people, right? So that's one way of moving forward. There is value in times of just, you know, moving ahead. Like for example, if your four-year-old falls and falls down and hurts their knee, but you can see that they're not, that, you know, the knee is not shattered. There's not blood gushing everywhere. As a mom, you're more likely to just simply say, oh, let's, let's move. Let, yes, I, I know. I know, honey. And let's move on. You know, time to go to the store. It's a way of, of actually teaching you can do this. You can move forward, right? Now, we don't want to create that as a lifelong habit of, of pivoting quickly to action. But there are, so I'm, I'm naming that there are moments where moving on is actually building capacity and strength. The third element of this that's important is there are times when distraction is absolutely necessary because it's recovery. So, for example, after the first nine months of the pandemic in December of last year, I, I hit the wall. I I had nothing left to give. I I had no energy to teach. I I didn't want to take care of the family coming home for the holidays. I really just wanted to be in bed. And my my body was saying, get into bed. And I watched Game of Thrones from start to finish all over again. Not all in one session, but <laughs> I gave myself permission to get into bed early and distract and sort of just build in a kind of recovery space where I wasn't constantly managing the pandemic and its correlates, right? So there there are some complexities to this. The last thing I want to say about that is some people need to take action first in order to feel better. And some people need to feel better in order to take action. And both are valid approaches. You just want to be careful that distracting yourself and moving on is not your only approach to difficult moments. That is so powerful. I love the idea about thinking about do you need to feel good to take action or does action make you feel good? Because I'm sure there's people listening that have those light bulb moments 
And then I love the nuance that you bring to everything that you do in the fact that neither is right or wrong and we could potentially probably overplay both. Yes. Yes, I certainly have overplayed in my lifetime the, oh, let's think this through. Let's feel all our feel. I've certainly overplayed that card. And thankfully, I have friends who say, I cannot process this for one more minute. Like, I'm going to go get ice cream. Right? Like, fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, that is so interesting. And then thinking about our support network, who is available and willing to do that processing and talking, or maybe they may not be doing that with you, but they're willing to go with you to the shops or go for a walk and that different people will probably respond in different ways as well. Absolutely. And and we need, we do need different kinds of relationships. And it's interesting. It doesn't matter where you look in the literature, whether you look at, you know, classic psychological resilience literature or a positive psychology based post-traumatic growth literature or the literature on grieving and loss. In, in a number of ways, they all say the same thing. And one of the things they say is we all need help. We need we need friends to go get ice cream with. We need people who are going to hold us accountable for a behavior. We need people who are going to love us no matter what. We we need wisdom experts and, and mentors. You know, we need no nobody does this alone. That, you know, that is just a silly fallacy that we can be um, prone to here in the in the States. I don't know if that happens in Australia, but there is a definite. I can just power through by myself attitude that we have to work against. Oh, we are working against that as well. This feeling of I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, self-made, self-this. And I really think that we're missing opportunities to allow other people in because when we do allow other people in, they can witness our journey. They can witness our strength and struggle. Sometimes they can also be bodyguards if other people need to be, you know, different spaces. Yeah, that's nice. really important. Well said. I love that. Well said. Yes. We we need others and others need us to be vulnerable because we then can model for them permission to be vulnerable and ask for help. It Absolutely. becomes a sort of virtuous circle. And to be, to start that cycle is quite uncomfortable. I know for me for a long time my story was I can do it. I can make anything work. I can make anything work. And then I remember getting to a point in my life where I couldn't make it work. Like the situation was just not workable. And then to gently let other people in to let them know that I couldn't make it work anymore. And a few of them were like, yeah, obviously, like everyone could see that. Like, you know, welcome to the reality. Um, and then allowing them to be with me. And they really enjoyed that. It's a privilege to be with people in their honesty and the realness of life. And then also knowing that there are some people in your life that you can call and just talk rubbish to. And that absolutely fills your heart. And then there's another person you can call and have a vent. And there's someone else who's going, you can call and they're going to um, call you out on your rubbish. And how amazing is that tapestry of life if we can allow ourselves to give permission to be open and to allow other people in? Uh, yeah, beautifully said. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's truly a myth that we get through life alone. It just yeah, is. 
Well, we definitely didn't get in here by ourselves, so I don't know why no, we feel like we should stay here by ourselves. No, the people who feel like they're, they've been self-made. I mean, just think of all the people who taught them or, you know, built the buildings that they were schooled in or, you know, showed them how not to handle a certain situation. I mean, there's just so much guidance in this world, in, in the natural, ordinary way of living that it, it's it's an astonishing desire I think that we have rooted in anxiety to prove that we can figure everything out. And yet there's incredible freedom in coming to recognize that I don't have to figure it all out. There are other wise voices and hearts around me. People have studied this. People have experienced this. People have tried this. Why not lean on their their wisdom? Absolutely. And thinking about that piece of, I am not alone. Other people have walked this path and they're further down the path too. One of the suggestions that I've made during the pandemic is to look for the exemplars, look for the people you most admire um, in terms of how they handle stressful moments. And then ask yourself, what is it exactly I admire about them? And, and, you know, bring that alive for yourself. Like, oh, I'm I'm so admiring of this person's you know ability to stay calm. You know how could I bring a few more minutes of calm to my day, right? To use exemplars out there as as absolute clear role models for how we might behave, what might be possible. Yes, what might be possible isn't that a beautiful opening to a potentially different future to what we're currently experiencing? And something that gets me really curious in major loss when say it's someone that you loved it could have been someone who's a part of your family and your immediate family it seems like there's takes a while to calibrate what life was and then you have that whiplash and then to get to this new space and it sounds like and seems like from reading your book as well it's that dance of stepping forward and stepping back and trying to let go, but then not wanting to let go, like there's this, that's another end, isn't it? That that tension of life, not wanting to let go because not leaning into the joy of the, the new. How does this all unfold for us? So the metaphor that I love is one by um, that's come to us by a, a Dr. Joan Borisenko, who's very, very famous in the mind-body medicine world. And she says that the journey of resilience is the shape of a smile. So you're starting out here in life and life is normal. And then something happens like a pandemic or like the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. And you descend into hell. And in that descent, things fall apart. So the old norms no longer play. They just don't exist. And eventually over time, new norms emerge and we we emerge into, you know, a, a way of being that is, um, growthful, or at least we return to who we had been before. So that's called bouncing back or we, we bounce forward, we grow. But in the bottom of the smile is this liminal space where we're learning to let go of certain things and hold on to some new things and, and feel all of our feelings and be in the chaos of what happens when life shatters And in that liminal space is when resilient people make conscious choices to move forward toward new practices, 
or new ways of thinking and, and living with oneself that actually cultivate health, cultivate serenity, cultivate hope, cultivate strength, right? But there, there is this time of chaos at the bottom of the smile when things have fallen apart and the new ways haven't emerged yet. We, we don't know who we are. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to try. I'm sure, you know, for everyone, the beginning months of the pandemic, we were all in the swamp together. Oh, that swamp. Gosh, we've all been in that swamp in all different times of our lives. And what I'm thinking about is another really potent teaching that you taught me years ago. And I remember as soon as you said it, I rushed and I spoke to mum on the phone. I said, how good is this? And mum was like, yes, that makes sense. You (laughs) taught pain is pain is pain. And that really opened me up to this idea that pain is pain. You know, there's so many times where we put stories in front of it, I shouldn't be feeling like this or I'm not feeling enough. My pain's not as bad as their pain. Can you explain how we give ourselves these narratives that sometimes hold us back? So long ago when I was working with children with cancer, I, I would often be in a position of recommending to the parents you know, to reach out to other families who had been through a similar journey. And one time I I had invited a mom to attend a, a support group and she went to one session and then she chose not to go again. And I said, why not? And she said, well, because I'm losing one child. There was a woman in the group who's lost two children. And I, you know, my pain just doesn't measure up. And I thought, oh my God, you know, we do this to ourselves. It's like, we're in the pain Olympics, like who, who wins the gold medal for how much pain and, and we can do it on on either side. We can feel like, oh, my pain is so much worse than yours. Or we can say, oh, my pain isn't valid because it's not as bad as yours. And the reality is pain is pain is pain is pain. Like there are women and men who go to war and experience active duty and the loss of comrades and they come home and their 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 sense of the experience seems to be a gentler one than others right there are people who've lost an animal a pet who are just devastated and others who feel it experience it as well, this is part of the circle of life they're kind of more philosophical i mean you cannot you cannot know which event is going to shatter you and you cannot judge. We cannot judge what event should shatter another person. Pain is pain is pain is pain. The most important thing is to validate your own suffering because when we get a little bit better at validating our own suffering, we're much kinder to others and validating their suffering. Oh, and so Maria, how do people do this? How do people give themselves the permission to acknowledge how they're feeling in that swamp at the bottom of that smile? You know, I think, first of all, knowing that that's that's actually crucial to resilience is can be helpful for some people, like the the recognition that this is an important first step. Um, Secondly, having it modeled. You know, so if you model vulnerability to your children, they're more likely to feel safe to be vulnerable as they grow up and admit when they're feeling bad things or difficult things or confusing things. Um, 
and then to invite, you know, the, as a, as a friend or a guide or a colleague to anyone to invite them into, you know, Tal Ben-Shahar, who was one of my teachers used to say, you know, it's okay to ask, how are you really? Not just how are you, but how are you really, you know, to invite people into conversations and then listen. So, so a number of ways, but but knowing that it is actually essential to growth, essential to resilience, I think is really important. Yes, and it's been so important for me for that understanding of that feel it to heal it, to be with it, to understand it, and then move through it. Because I think before I learnt these skills of heartfelt resilience and heartfelt living, really, I didn't want to do that messy bit. I wanted the start and the end. <laughs> like I didn't want the right. messy middle. Yeah. Nobody loves the messy middle, but it, it, it can it can get a little more comfortable in there. Not comfortable with the event or the pain or the suffering, but comfortable with the fact that this is a part of life. Yes, you know, and it's so comforting. Like I found it really comforting in the last few months as there's been so much un- uncertainty swir- swirling to think, well, I don't know what the future holds, but today I can choose this as your words, that beautiful words of like how can I shape my day and being able to bring ourselves back to the present seems like a crucial part of being resilient. So, yes, so some beautiful um, new work that's come out. It's not actually new work. It's a new reflection on work. George Bonanno has just published a book called The New Resilience. And in it, he talks about the the flexible approach that resilient people take. And one of the things that that he's uncovered, you know, literally millions of data points and hundreds of thousands of studies through the last few decades. And first of all, we know that resilient people don't use the same repertoire of skills in the next event. In other words, what worked for you in the past may not work for you now. Some of it might, some of it might not. And you have to kind of be playful and experimental with what what, what are you going to try now? Secondly, change happens in the present moment. It doesn't happen in the past. The future is a mystery. So we have the day. That's what we've been given. It's, it's, It's our canvas. It's our template to work with to see, oh, it does this help me feel better? Does this help me quiet my mind? Is this help me be a better person? You use the day as sort of the experimental lab and see what happens. During the pandemic, many people talked about the absolute goodness, the beneficence of being able to go outside and walk, even when we we weren't allowed to be close to others, to take those solitary walks and be reminded that there's a larger world out there, right? And um that worked for a period of time for many people. And then it didn't work because we were so lonely, right? but for a while it worked. And that's that kind of shape the day. See what's going to work for you today. I'm laughing, Maria, because I remember at one point in the pandemic, I was doing all my traditional things. When life falls apart, I had this tick, tick shape, you know, complete teacher, back to, you know, sleep, movement, exercise, do all that. And I realized after a few days, it's not cutting it. I need a bigger dose. I need more. And so then I included in a meditation in the morning, meditation in the evening and a bath. 
And I found that that really helped settle my nervous system and it brought me to this idea of that flexibility, that dose management is different depending on what's happening in your life, what's possible, and the importance of building a buffet of tools and strategies so we can pick what's going to be appropriate in that moment. I, I did something unique. I've never done this before. After that month in December when I fell apart and I needed to watch Game of Thrones in order to rest and recover, um, as I was emerging from that, I realized that all the things that used to work for me were not working because I was I was in a a kind of existential despair that I you know, I was functioning, I was working, I was putting food on the table for the kids. I was buying holiday gifts. I would, you know, I was functioning, but I, inside I was disintegrating. And, and one of the reasons I was disintegrating, I, I began to consider was that I was disconnected from something important inside myself. I was so busy being responsible out in the world, zooming 10 hours a day, teaching, learning, consulting, coaching, and then taking care of all these young adult kids who had come home, I lost track of me. And so I started January with a habit I've never done before. I took a little journal and every morning I wrote one true thing. And I wrote the things that you wouldn't say out loud, that you would never say. Like I've never publicly before admitted to myself how much I hate the fact that people still have Christmas decorations up in February. Like that really bothers me. You know, like I just I gave myself permission to say, I don't want to feed my children today. Like I just don't, you know, and I just would write one true thing. That was the thing that actually got me out of the funk was actually connecting to myself for just one minute every day in the most honest way I could. Meditation didn't help. Exercise wasn't helping. I clearly needed more rest. Game of Thrones helped with that. I didn't need more company. In fact, I need. I was very isolated, and yet I couldn't stand being around people. I just needed to be connected to myself in a different way. Oh, Maria, you're bringing up this idea of connection and self-connection. And so often we can be doing all the things and yet be out of connection with self and allowing that space to hear those whispers. And what's interesting about your story is that you gave yourself permission to rest. You know, a lot of the people that I work with, the idea of rest, and dare I say say the word pleasure, just makes them feel completely uncomfortable. And particularly after significant loss, the guilt of pleasure or rest or enjoyment. Can you help us unpick that? So, you know, Lucy Hone, who's written a beautiful book called Resilient Grieving, and she was already a resilient expert and then faced one of the worst moments, a tragic car accident, a loss of her teenage daughter. She, in her book and in her TED talk, she talks about the importance of asking, is this helping or is this causing harm? Right. And there are, even those of us whose hearts are just ripped apart, sometimes what helps are those momentary pleasures. You know, we, we need to be, we need respite. And sometimes respite comes through rest. 
Sometimes it comes through tenderness of others. And sometimes it comes through laughter and joy. Like we need, we need respite. And pleasure is one of those things that provides respite. So any valuing or judging judgment that we have around, oh, you know, I should be sad all the time, or you should be sad all the time. You know, you've just had a terrible loss. Why are you smiling? Why are you listening to music? Why are you dancing? You know, it's very, that's again, a very limited perspective on, on the wholeness of a human being and how we're capable of holding multiple experiences at the same time. Oh, Maria, that brings me to that idea of true hope. And yeah. how can we hold true hope? And if we can unpack true hope moving forward, because something that I'm mindful of is not promising anything that is not like I can't promise anything. You you can't we can't promise the future, but how can we hold on to this notion of true hope? So true hope is a phrase that emerged in the medical oncology world in contrast to false hope, right? The last thing we want a physician to do is to give us hope that isn't real, that that's just never going to come true. And we don't want to do that as parents either, right? So the fantasy, oh, everything's going to be fine, sounds good coming off the tongue, but it's ridiculous because we don't know that. There's no guarantee. But true hope is grounded in first facing reality, building in that and. And on the other side of the and, it involves taking action toward a slightly better future. And that slightly better future is defined by you. Like, what does a better future look like for you today? My brother, when he was dying, was very clear that his better future every day, even while he was dying, was that we would take care of the kids, that all of the focus of our attention was on his children, right? And so he had to, he got to have a sense of better moments, moments that were meaningful for him because we were all with him focused on the children. Um, I have a friend who actually passed during the pandemic, not from COVID, but from cancer. And this is a, a, a gentleman in his 80s. And, you know, he just loved music, jazz music, rock music, classical. And, you know, the better moments for him since we couldn't be together because of the pandemic were shared experiences of listening and shared conversations about music. He got to define what a better future looks and felt like, what a next better moment or a next better day looks and feels like. That's essential. Oh, that's such an invitation to define the next moment. And right. there's there's a phrase in your book that um, comes into my mind quite often and the idea of within hell there's always a slither of heaven, like it's there. And the heaven sometimes is really only the reality that we are still breathing and, and given a chance to navigate another day. Yes, and coming back to that present moment of, that you and I don't know what's coming, I don't know what's next, and yet there is hope. I can shape this moment, your decision to allow rest, mm -hmm. your brother's decision to think about children, your friend's decision to think about music. And I remember you sharing with us, you made a decision years ago to dance in the morning. Can you tell us about that choice and how that had a ripple effect in your life? So I love to dance. There weren't, there aren't many dancing opportunities for middle-aged women in my town um, that aren't horrifically embarrassing. And I was coming out of the first 
sort of big wave of grief around the loss of my brother, which happened to coincide with the falling apart of my marriage, which happened to coincide with a tremendous amount of financial stress and strain, all of which had, you know, difficult consequences for my children. So it was a bit of a mess as happens in life. Sometimes you get hit from five different arrow shots from five different arenas. Right. And I knew, I knew that moving my body was going to be helpful. Um, I was doing morning meditations and that helped. But as soon as I got out of bed and you know finished my meditation, I was back into despair again. So I would get up at six o'clock in the morning because my teenagers were asleep then. And I would put on you know the TV show MTV and I would get to, I would dance a few minutes every morning. And sometimes when you put on MTV back then, like your favorite artists from when you were young, like Bruce Springsteen and John Bon Jovi would come and it's like, oh, now I'm 19 again, you know, now I'm 16 again. It felt so good. And so that dance practice lasted way longer than I thought it was going to, because I was just having so much fun with it. Oh, and so how did that shape the rest of your day? That one choice to give yourself permission to dance. Yeah. So some days the effect, the positive effect ended as soon as I stopped dancing because the pain was too hard or the struggle was too complex. Other days, this is initially other days, the, the positive resonance would last a while. Right. But what started to happen is that over time, like 30 days, 60 days, so two months, what started to happen again, is I started to feel like myself again, because I was, I, this grief was enormous. The pressure was enormous. And yet I was shaping my day and showing up for myself as healthily as I could. And that built increasing confidence that I could cope, increasing optimism for the future, increasing, you know, vitality within me, like, oh, now I'm going to try this and see what happens as an experiment, right? Oh, an experiment. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? You know, we're just experimenting here. It's just trial and error. We're just, yeah, we're making this stuff up. We're doing the best we can. I mean, we do have research. We do have data that points us, that shines a light in certain directions. But at the end of the day, I mean, no one ever taught me to write in write one honest thing in my journal. I made that up. And it's worked for you. Like it worked for you in that moment. It helped you it find that connection again. And that is the beauty of talking about these complex and nuanced topics is that there is no right way to heal. There is no right way to move on or to be with loss. There is no right way to do a pandemic. Like no one really knows what's right for us. It's just trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do the best we can to learn and to, to look to our exemplars for role modeling and to um, practice things. And we are creative, generative beings who, and, and, and George Bonanno says this in his, in his new book, every event is different. You know, what worked for me during my divorce may not work for me today as I'm navigating, you know, difficult business contracts or, or the shutdown of my child's school again because of a COVID infection, right? Like what worked then, it's a new moment. And I've changed, grown, I've learned different things. We'll see. We'll see what works. And as you're saying that, there's a part of me that's going, oh, that's so annoying. You know, like, this, <laughs> you know, it's so annoying, this messy bit. And we don't have a tick, a, a tick sheet for everything. Like 
there's a part of me that's really frustrated by that. And there's another part of me that has some relief in that, in the sense that you can't get it right or wrong. We're just here doing the best we can. Right. Right. And most human beings have one or two go-to moves that usually work. Like for me, moving my body, exercise has always made a positive difference, right? Sometimes I have to find new ways of exercising or new times of exercise. Sometimes I want to exercise alone with others. So that'll vary. But moving my body is a go-to move for me. So there are some things that will remain relatively stable and consistent for you. And yeah, Think of it more as a playground or an experiment. <laughs> Your face is like, oh, because <laughs> I get it. I get it. And I live it. And yet I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because we do like to have some steps. And I've had so many clients and people look at me and particularly working in schools, like what is right? We want it to be right and perfect. And I really know where they're coming from. and yet. Every classroom, every context, every teacher is different. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all. This well-being space is messy and beautiful. Surprising. (laughs) Yeah, surprising. That's a lovely word. It's very (laughs) surprising. (laughs) Um, Maria, I would love – you have just got such a beautiful way with words as everybody's heard on this conversation. And – Now that they've heard your voice on this podcast, I really hope that they get your book. So as they read, they get the experience that I had that as you read, you can hear Mm. your voice and it's just so soothing. Every now and then, because there's this beautiful chapter called Crazy Town, it's one of my favourites. So I just go straight to Crazy Town. I'm like, yeah, I'm on. Yep, this is fine. This is normal. This is a part of the journey and you work through. I would love for you to read something to us. For people who are listening who their hearts are heavy, their hearts are weary, could you just soothe us just for a moment? Let's have a little bit of heaven in this mess of life. I would be honoured to do so. So this is a poem from an Irish uh, poet, philosopher, Catholic priest, John O'Donoghue, who passed a few years ago. And it's entitled Benacht, I think that's how you say it, which means blessing. And he writes the following. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the crock of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. And may the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Ah, oh, Maria. 
you have a way of touching hearts and minds and opening us up to a new possible way to shape the day. Oh, that's just landing so beautifully to really think about the life we're living in, the mess, the magic, the brutal moments, the magic moments, and that it's all a part of it. We can't avoid it. I love that book um, that I read to my boys all the time, Going on a Bear Hunt. You know, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go through it, and that's life, isn't it? So to wrap up this conversation, I would love to share with you some sentence starters, which you actually introduced me to sentence starters years ago. (laughs) And to finish it off, would you participate in this? Absolutely. So. I am inspired by. I'm inspired by human beings who bring love and warmth wherever they go. Um, When life feels hard. When life feels hard, I really do want to watch Game of Thrones one more time. (laughs) I really do. Uh, An underrated skill is. An underrated skill is the ability to feel a very difficult feeling and just let it come in and let it go. Mm. And I am looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to the next season of warmth. (laughs) And I'm determined to find it even as we head into the gray time of November here. Uh, Maria. Thank you so much for your time, your energy and your knowledge. I know that this conversation is really going to help soothe some very weary and heavy hearts. Mm. Thank you so much, Meg. It is such a treat to be with you again. May this moment come again for us. Absolutely. Thanks for being a part of the School of Wellbeing. Bye, everyone. Maria has a way of making even the darkest and most difficult human emotions make sense. I hope this conversation has sparked true hope in you and inspires you to shape your day with more courage and compassion. Maria's book is a short course in happiness after loss and other dark and difficult times. And I encourage you to get it, to read it, to put it on your shelf and reach for it during these dark and difficult times in which we all inevitably face. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. From this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to improve your well-being? I am currently working on ways to create spaces for big-hearted humans like you to connect, share, laugh and learn in more authentic ways. So you can subscribe to the Well-Loved Thought of the Week to be kept in a loop with upcoming events and opportunities. I would love to hear from you and how that podcast is impacting your life. You can connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. I truly believe that it is individual conversations that have the potential to move us all forward. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes.
Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.